I'd like to direct your attention to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and I'll be reading a very familiar portion of the Christmas story, starting in verse 8. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to follow along. There should be one in the chair in front of you nearby, uh, or, or look, look on with someone else. Let's consider God's word. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Thus ends the reading of God's inerrant and inspired word. One of the things that I've enjoyed about being a parent is introducing my kids to things that I love. It's something that we all enjoy doing, uh, introducing kids to, to the fun, good things about life. I remember telling my daughter, Karis, on her first birthday, when I, we, did, you know, we did this strange American thing where you take most of the clothes off your child and strap them into a chair in a circle around your family. Everybody gets their cameras out and you put a massive cake in front of them, right? I remember whispering to Karis, your life is never going to be the same after this. Sugar, right? She never had sugar before. And it was, uh, it was an exciting experience. I remember seeing her eyes light up when she took a whole scoopful of icing, right? And, and put that in her mouth. We love introducing them to good things. It's not something we have to discipline ourselves to do. It's, it's natural, right? I've never met an empty nester parent who looks back over their years when the children were in the home and thought, man, we forgot to tell them about ice cream. I can't believe it. Like, we forgot to tell them. Of course not. Just recently, I let my daughter take a sip of my Coke Zero. I have a have an affection for caffeine in all forms. And so if it's not morning time, I'm drinking a, a Coke Zero in the afternoon. And, uh, and I let Karis taste it one time. And now whenever she sees me with the Coke Zero, she turns on that five-year-old charm. She tilts her head. She bats her eyes. And then I just start handing her, every, you know, hand her everything. And before I know it, I'll, I'll hand her my Coke for, for a sip and it's gone. And she'll say, Daddy. And she just kind of shakes it. You see, it's hard to keep really good things a secret, isn't it? In fact, I was reading last night that 94% of the world's population can recognize the red and white Coca-Cola logo. 94% of the world's population. Now, I know that Coke spends, I presume, hundreds of millions of dollars advertising, trying to get people to be aware of their brand and especially to drink their beverages, but it really doesn't surprise me that much that nearly everyone knows about Coke. I've been in a variety of different countries around the world, four or five countries in Africa, and every place I went, you could always buy Coke. Sometimes they would pour it into a bag. Have you ever seen Coke in a bag? 
cost extra for the bottle, so they would pour it into a bag, and you'd see people walking around with a plastic bag and a straw, right? Coke in a bag. It was fun. And it makes sense, right? Because Coke is amazing. It's amazing. I don't know what they do. They mix sugar and all sorts of delightful chemicals. Don't tell me what they are. And caffeine and all these, you know, fizzy, throat-tickly bubble things. And then you really can taste the happiness when you drink a Coke. Coke tastes so good. And so it makes sense that it's a globally significant drink. And th- I mean, think about how that would work, though. Apparently, someone had a Coke and told someone else about Coke who told someone else about Coke, who told someone else about Coke, and so it goes. The fame of Coke spread. You see, that's how good news works. It spreads because it's good news. Well, shouldn't the same be true about the gospel? In our account written by Luke this morning, we see that the Christmas story begins on a very normal night. I suppose this isn't the beginning, but we pick up On a very normal night. The shepherds in the region of Bethlehem are famous now, but they weren't famous back then. In fact, they were the opposite of famous. Outcasts of society. Among the lower classes. And here they are. Shepherds. Doing what shepherds do. They were out in the field. They were watching over their sheep. Just normal people on a normal day. Then suddenly, everything changed. Verse 9 says that suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to them and that the glory of the Lord shone around them. I mean, what could be more surprising or what could be more abnormal than that? The text makes it clear that it's not just the angel's glory that shone around them, but that it was the glory of the Lord that lit up the fields. And this should be no small thing, right? I mean, just think, we had, in our society, we just experienced a solar eclipse. And it was funny, my sister and her husband are both optometrists, and they were reminding us, like, don't look at the sun. And and I saw all these warnings everywhere, don't, you know, don't look at, don't look at the sun. I mean, think about it, though. If it is so dangerous to look at the sun, mostly covered by the moon, for just a few seconds, and if that would damage your eyes, what about the glory of the Lord? The glory of God makes the sun look like a match flame when compared to his true glory. Throughout the Bible, when humans encounter any manifestation of the glory of God, there's a dramatic response. They're often knocked to the ground or perhaps blinded. Sometimes they don't even survive. You see, the glory of the Lord is terrifying to sinful humanity. We're just not used to that kind of splendor, that moral beauty. The shepherds, even when seeing the glory of God represented by the angels, they were filled with fear, the text says. Now surely they were afraid of this awesome sight of angels and and of the glory of the Lord. But does this not remind us how different God is from us? Does this not remind us how unused we are to being in the presence of the Lord, that we're even terrified of his messengers? And does this not remind us that as sinners, how foreign pure holiness is to us? Another way to pick up on this theme is you'll notice there in verse 14, we have the presence of peace. Look again at 14. Glory to God in the highest 
and unearth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Why is it that the angels would be celebrating in their song, why would they be celebrating peace, the declaration of, of peace on earth? Just this past week, on December the 7th, we celebrated yet another anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. December the 7th. And I've seen, I noticed a movie one time that had uh, a depiction of that great event. And one U.S. Navy man, when he saw a Japanese fighter flying really low over the ground, he said famously, Japs? I didn't even know the Japs were sore at us. You see... There's an important catch. If you don't know that you have an enemy, you're not going to be able to understand the situation at hand. And it's important for us to remember that there is indeed hostility between God and man. As humans, we have a long history of hostility with God. And that's because humans have a long history of sinning against God. Sin, by its very nature, is an hostile act towards God. That, that we should remember that every sin that we forget, it, it's an affront to the lordship of God. It is an opposition to his rule. It is, it is a standard expression of, I am opposed to your government, God. I am against your rule. This hostility is crucial for us to begin to understand the gospel. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that we all once were enemies of God. And some still are. For if while we were enemies, Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Sin is war with God. And all of our sinful behaviors, and all of our sinful thoughts, and all of our sinful attitudes are warish acts of aggression towards him. And so we should expect, as we are told, that our sins will be met with a response. And that response is the just and righteous wrath of God. You see, ever since the garden, when our parents, Adam and Eve, first sinned, we see that sinners are banished out of the presence of God, where they will await future judgment. In fact, this is a pattern that was established even before the garden. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we read that God did not even spare the angels who sinned, but cast them out away from his presence, even into hell. This is the same response that our parents, Adam and Eve, received. God removed them from the garden, away from the tree of life, away from the presence of the Lord. And he actually even positioned, again, we see angels. Angels at the gate of the garden with flaming swords reminding us sinners cannot be in the presence of God. Sinners cannot be with God, the source of happiness and life. Sinners cannot peacefully exist in the presence of God. Our sin brings on God's wrath, and so peace cannot exist between us. Only fear. Only judgment. But you'll notice that the very first words out of this messenger of God, this angel, there in verse 10, it, th those words are, fear not. 
It's a common thing for angels to say, understandably so. They're the very same words that the angel said in speaking to Zechariah in chapter 1 of Luke. And these messengers came from the Lord declaring, we have good news. What is that good news? If we look down in verse 14, we see that once again, as the angels are finishing up, delivering their message, they, they wrap it up in song, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. These angels are messengers. They're messengers from heaven and they have come on a mission of peace. Come declaring the message of peace. They come with the declaration that something is happening that will forever change the relationship between God and man. That's why they say, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He was Christ the Lord. They break out into song, singing glory to God in the highest, because now peace is available on earth. Peace is available for those with whom he is pleased. And this brings us to the crux of the matter. What does the birth of Christ, what does the birth of this child have to do with peace? What does a baby have to do with with peace. Well, the angels deliver a couple of important pieces of information that help us understand the identity of this infant. And you see them there in verse 11. First, they tell us he is a savior. He is a savior. The child is here on our behalf. He's a savior. He has come to save, to save us from our sins, to save us from the wrath of God. If you think about it in the past, most of the time when God visits earth, he came as judge. God descended on Egypt as the angel of death. God descended on Sinai with smoke and terror where, where humans could not even approach that holy mountain. He descended on Sodom with fire and with a sword. But now, God comes as a baby, as an infant. And now you don't have to hide from him. Now there's no more danger. In fact, you're invited. Come and see. You can do what the shepherds did. You can draw near and worship without fear. He is a Savior. But the angels also tell us that this Savior is also Christ the Lord. This baby is God. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one authorized and chosen by God to act on his behalf. This baby is an authorized agent of the Father sent on a peacekeeping mission. He's the only one who has the proper and necessary credentials as God and also as man. He's the only one able to deal with our sin problem. Jesus is God incarnate. He is, to, he is mysteriously fully God and fully man. And as you likely know, this man would go on 
living. Differently than all other men, for he lived without sin. And then Jesus did what only God could do. When he died, he faced the full wrath of God. And he bore it for our sin. And then he lived again. He bore the wrath of God, he died, and then he rose again. And so when the angels came, they were bringing good news that man can finally be made right with God through the baby in the manger, through an infant, which obviously makes this the most important news in the history of all the universe, that through this person, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, man can be made right with God. But here's the thing. This particular news is only good news for those who hear about it. The birth of Jesus does not mean that all men will be saved. The birth of Jesus does not mean that. It is only for those who respond to and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Luke goes on to make this very clear in the book of Acts chapter 4. Where he declares, there is salvation in no one else. Chapter 4, verse 12. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then again, back in chapter 2 of Luke. Luke makes it clear. The angels make it clear. There is new peace on earth, but this is not for all people. It is discriminatory. It It is specifically for those among whom God is pleased. As we know from the book of Hebrews, without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. Did you catch that distinction there in in verse 14? This peace is only for those with whom God is pleased. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Salvation is only possible by faith. Faith in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. There is only one way. His name is Jesus. There is only one gospel, and that person is Jesus, and there's only one way to the Father, and that way is Jesus, which means the most important news in the universe is only good news for those who know it. It is only effective if it is known and responded to. If the gospel is not known, there is no way for man to be saved. If the gospel is not known, there is no way for man to be saved. Paul says this in Romans chapter 10. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And then he goes on to say, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. In chapter 10, the angels make it clear that this good news is intended for everyone. Did you catch that? Look back down at verse 10. This news of great joy, who is it for? All people. The angel makes it a point to say, this news is for all people. And then in verse 11, this child is born unto you. 
Well, who is this you? Just the shepherds? No. This is a collective you. This is humanity. So think about this for a moment. This angel comes to a small, select group of nobodies to deliver the most important piece of information in the history of the universe. What do you think their assumption is? What do you think the angels expect for the shepherds to do with this piece of news? What should they do with this particular piece of information? Why do you think that the angels would make it clear that this news, we're only telling you, but it's for all people. That the message of peace is for peace on all of the earth. Is not the assumption of the angels that once you know this good news, go and tell others. That's the assumption. And that was the impulse of the shepherds. If we read ahead, we'd see in chapter 20 that the shepherds went on, that once they saw the Christ child, they returned glorifying God and praising him for all they had seen and heard. But if you go all the way to the end of Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, we see that this expectation to tell is not merely an expectation, but it's a command, a command from our Lord himself. Listen as I read Jesus' words, Luke 24, verse 46. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses to these things. And so we see the pattern in the book of Luke. It begins with a call to Zechariah, to, with a call to Mary, with a call to the shepherds, and a call to the wise men. Come and see. Come and look. Come and behold God. But then the book ends with go and tell. Come and see and go and tell. If you've seen him, go and tell. I feel the need to report to you this morning that we find ourselves today in the 21st century in a mission crisis. If you were to divide the world up into three portions, you could roughly do so. Perhaps you could think in terms of a pizza with three big slices. One slice, 33% of the world identifies as Christian. This does not mean that they are actually Christian, but that they identify as Christian. This would include Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and all of the folks in America that claim to be Christians, the people who identify as Christians. There's another portion of the world, 38%, roughly a third, 38% of the world that have access to the gospel but have rejected Christ. They've heard the news of Christ, or perhaps they live in a city where there's a Christian radio station. Whether they listen to it or not, that's not in the stats. They can listen to the news of Christ. They might have a neighbor down the street who goes to church. There might be a church in their neighborhood. They might be able to hear the news preached. They might have a Bible or some other book in their language. But they've rejected Christ. 38% of the world. But then there's another portion. 
29% of the world's population have never heard of Jesus Christ. And they have, what's worse, they don't even have a chance to access it. If they wanted to know about Christ, they couldn't. There's no access to the gospel. There are no Bible-believing churches. There are no Christians that they know of that live nearby. There's no radio station. There's no Bible in their language. 1,860 languages in the world do not have one single word of Scripture translated into their heart language. 1,860 languages. 4,500 languages do not have all of the Bible. That's more than one billion Bibleless people. I'm not talking about the people who own a zillion Bibles and don't read them. I'm talking about the people that could not read them if they wanted to. All in all, there are two billion people in the world who have no access to the gospel. Just let that sink in. Two billion people. If you had a list of these two billion people, and if you were to read their names, it would take 400 years just to read each name once. And that's not sleeping. 400 years. Souls with no access. That means if one of them wanted to hear about Jesus, they could walk as far as they could and they could not find a gospel witness. Not a church, not a Christian. If they called every single person in their contact list, no one would know of a Christian. You remember at the beginning of the sermon I mentioned, 94% of the world can recognize the red and white Coca-Cola label. 94%. And yet only 71% have heard the name of Jesus. Is Coca-Cola going to out-evangelize us? Are more humans going to die knowing about Coke than the gospel of Jesus Christ by which man can be made right with God? These are not just statistics. These are actual people, actual children, actual souls. I will never forget driving through Eastern Africa, driving by a Muslim graveyard that took 10 minutes to drive by. These are actual souls with no access to the gospel. Today, some of these will have children. And if nothing changes, those children will be born, they will live, and they will die without ever have heard, hearing the name of Jesus Christ. And according to Romans 1, they have enough knowledge to be condemned by God. In Romans 1, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. You catch what that means? All of these people, without access to the gospel, They've still rebelled against God. They have still rejected his rule. And they have still suppressed the truth that they actually have about God in their unrighteousness. In other words, they know just enough about God 
to be damned to hell. That's what it means to be lost. They're lost. You see, here's the thing. You and I know how they can be found. We know how they can be saved forever. So what can we do? How could there be any other option for us than to say, I will go wherever, I will pray, I will give whatever, I will do whatever it takes, I will seek to see the kingdom of God further established in the world, especially among the unreached peoples of the world. Is this not the required attitude of a follower of Jesus Christ? Did Jesus not say to his would-be disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what it means to follow Christ. We've given up our rights to call the shots. We've given up our rights to choose. Our money is no longer our money. Our time is no longer our time. Our future is no longer our future. Our dreams are no longer our dreams. We're his. He's given us all of eternity to enjoy him. So we die in this life in hope of the life to come. And Jesus said, if you want to truly live, you must indeed die now. Right before Jesus ascended into heaven, After his earthly ministry, he left the disciples, who were the early leaders of the church, pastors. He left them with a job. We know this as the Great Commission. Their job was to make sure that this good news spreads to the ends of the earth. You've heard this, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. So who is it that God has made responsible for spreading this news? Who is it that God will hold responsible for spreading this news? Brothers and sisters, Do you realize that you and I live in the wealthiest, most technologically advanced era of church history? There's never before been a generation better equipped to take the gospel to any place on the earth than our generation. Never before. We are the wealthiest, we are the most educated, and we are the healthiest. And we've got awesome Christmas light displays. Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than money given to reach the unreached peoples. The job is not done. We are still bound by this mandate. The Christmas story tells us of how Jesus became the first missionary. He left comfort, he put aside wealth, he put aside health and security and family, and he came and dwelt among us. He gave up his interests, his rights, his comfort, and his wealth to go to us, that we might be saved, and that through his poverty, we might become rich. 
That is what we celebrate at Christmas. Christmas is a celebration not of elf on a shelf, but on the rescue mission of God. That because of Christ, I will not suffer for my sin. That is good news. That is why joy is proclaimed. That is why we celebrate. Because Bethlehem was the first step to Calvary. And so we're called to go and be like Jesus. To go and love our neighbors the way that Christ has. And that he came and loved us. Do you remember when Jesus, in his high priestly prayer recorded in the Gospel of John, do you remember when he prayed, As you have sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. Jesus is praying that he has sent us into the world just like he was sent. Christmas is a model for missions. That's why we give to Lottie Moon at Christmas time. As Southern Baptists, this is our cooperative effort with other churches to pull our resources together and send some of the best equipped, most qualified Christians to live among dangerous places and among other peoples in the hopes that they would have the chance to share the gospel. We can't all go. We send. The president of my seminary, Dr. Danny Aiken, who's a hero of mine, he used to say it like this, and I'll never forget this. He said, if you claim to be a Christian, there are three possible options in how you respond to the Great Commission. You can either go, send, or disobey. You can go. You can leave this town. You can take the skills that God has given you and the education that he has given you, and you can establish and plant your life among the unreached peoples. And I pray that God would do that and call that for some of us. My wife and I pray that for our children, that they would perhaps go and plant their life that others might know. You can send. You can take short-term mission trips. You can pray. You can give. And friends, prayer is powerful. It is a primary part of the Great Commission. I don't want to underestimate it, but this morning I want to remind you and call you to give. We have, as Southern Baptists, hundreds. We have hundreds of qualified, trained, willing missionaries who we cannot afford to send. That is, there are people who are dying, people who are ready to go, and we don't have the money to send them. If you can't go, give. The task is not yet done. The task is not for a select few. It is for all of us. There's one third final option. That is you can disobey. You can go, you can give, or you can disobey. What will it be for you? Throughout December, we are collecting our Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I know that at Trinity, we provide a lot of different opportunities to give. And we call a lot of these opportunities missions, and rightly so. But I find it hard to believe that any opportunity is as important as sending gospel witnesses among those who have not yet heard. I would like to encourage you and your family to be praying. We're going to take up an offering here in a few minutes, but we'll be taking it up through all of December. To be praying, how would God call you to give so that someone else might hear the gospel?
could it be that you spend more money on Christmas dinner than getting the gospel to the ends of the earth? Let that not be so. I'd like to invite you to close your head or close your eyes and, and bow your head for a time of reflection as we consider how God would be asking us to respond to his word. Perhaps there are some of us who are still enemies of God. One of the ways we can tell is we don't have inner peace. Our lives are marked with depression and fear and anxiety and guilt because we know that we're not right with God. If that's you, then I invite you. Place your faith in Christ. Turn to him. Give him your life. Trust in him and you will live. God is calling all of us as Christians to consider how are we building our life around the Great Commission mandate to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Consider now, how is it that God's calling you to respond? We're going to stand and we're going to sing together. And I invite you that as you sing, to consider the beauty of Jesus and consider how to respond. Let's stand and sing together.